You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on March 9th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was In Uniform. Music was performed by Carl Reese. I'm thinking that I'm falling all the time. I'm thinking that I'm falling all the time. I'm thinking that I'm falling all the time. Charles Rohrbacher was a military counselor for the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors in San Francisco when he was invited to Juneau in 1980 by the Catholic Peace Fellowship and Alaskans for World Peace to present a workshop on draft and military counseling, which led to him meeting his wife, Paula, a year later. They'll be celebrating their 34th anniversary in October. (laughs) Making their home in Juneau and having a daughter and a son, Phoebe and Miguel, all of them are Mudrums veterans, A Catholic deacon for the past 10 years, Charles continues to believe that Jesus was serious when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Please welcome our first storyteller tonight, Charles. So it's all true. I was a uh, military counselor for the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, which meant I'm not a lawyer, um, but we spent a lot of time with the military Uh, law review, studying military regulations and federal court cases. And I got to counsel um, all kinds of folks in the armed forces, Army, Navy, Air Force. But I will say probably the most challenging um, and interesting were the Marines, Uh, Semper Fi. So uh, I got to know the Marines um, out in front of the Armed Forces Entrance and Examination Station in um, Oakland, where I did pre-enlistment counseling, and I learned a lot about the psychology of many of those who do join the Marines. Uh, One young man in high school, I was showing him the contract, talking to him about what was involved in entering the armed forces, and I said, why do you want to join the Marines? He said, I hate high school. (laughs) I said, okay, what is it you hate about high school? I'm sick of people telling me what to do. (laughs) I said, it's gonna work out for you, my friend, uh, in the US Marine Corps. So I was working late on a Thursday night at the Central Committee in our rundown office where we were working 60 or 70 hours a week for next to nothing. Got a phone call from a young man who said, is this the CCCO? I said, yes, it is. And I said, what's your problem? He says, well, I'm in the Marines. I'm at the Concord Naval Weapons Station, and they're threatening to kill me. I said, okay, good. Can you go into a little more detail? And he explained that, in fact, he had been at Moffett Field, which was about 40 miles away in the Marine Detachment there, and he turned in his um, sergeant for um, hazing. Now, good idea, you can do that in the military. The problem is, The problem is, is that can follow you around because instead of putting him on an aircraft carrier, sending him to Okinawa, instead what they did was they sent him to Concord Naval Weapons Station 40 miles away. And of course, word travels quickly. And the next thing he knew, he was getting death threats. Now, the particular death threat was that he was going out that weekend, remember it's Thursday night, that weekend 
to go on a live fire exercise. This live fire exercise means everybody's got their M16s and a lot of ammunition and there's lots of bad things that could happen to you if people wanted to do something fatal to your life. So I said, okay, he said, what do you need? He says, well, I've got to get out of the Marines. I said, okay, that may take a little bit of time. No, it's got to happen this weekend. I said, okay, okay. So got his name, got all the information I needed. And then I thought, how am I going to do this? Well, first thing is I had to start looking a lot more official. So got the tie going here, buttoned it up, got a coat, because I didn't own a tie. I only owned a sports jacket and a pair of khaki pants, which I've continued to wear for the last almost 40 years. <laughs> and then I thought, how am I going to get on the base? I mean, the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, hi, if you just admit me onto the Concord Naval Weapons Station where you purportedly have nuclear weapons. Um, sure, that's going to work great because CCCO sounds like some kind of communist front organization. So, so I got some of those press-on letters. We didn't have printers back then. And I made a card that said, the Bay Area Military Law Project, of which I was the only the sole member of this organization. So I made a very official looking card. I, I think I cut out from a Bay Area Rapid Transit um, ticket, a kind of an interesting looking logo to look sort of official. And I figured I'd wave this thing around at the base. Now, I also didn't have a car. And I thought, you know, if I'm gonna be very official, it's gonna be hard for me just to drive up on the bus to the base entrance, but that's what I did. I got off a block away. I had a briefcase, I had my tie, I had my jacket. I went to the front gate where there's a Marine guard and a big, a big uh, 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 crossing gate and so forth. And there's my guy. That's my lawyer, that's my lawyer, he said. I said, well, I didn't disabuse anybody of the fact that I did not have a law degree or had never studied law, and I was admitted onto the base, went to the base, and I started working my way up through the chain of command because I demanded to see the commanding officer, and I was, I was shouting out Article 118, murder, Article 119, manslaughter, Article 124, maiming under the Youth Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 128, assault, and even grabbed Article 133, conduct unbecoming an officer. I was threatening Leavenworth. I was threatening federal intervention. Um, and I talked to sergeants and platoon leaders. And I finally got to the executive officer of the Marine Detachment. He came out of his office, kind of looked me up and down contemptuously, came over and said, how can I help you with your little problem? Now, I'm kind of tall, and I never really try to use my height to any advantage, but I decided it was time to do that. So I made myself as tall as I possibly could. I leaned over into his face, and I said, Lieutenant, my little problem is going to become your big problem if anything happens to this young man. And if you ever, ever want to see 
the Bay Area Military Law Project <laughs> and its representatives back at your base, then you'll let something bad happen to this guy. But I'm going to advise you right now that you need to immediately start discharging procedures for this Marine and, and certainly make sure he doesn't go on this live fire exercise. And then I turned on my heel and walked off the base as if I actually represented something called the Bay Area <laughs> Military Law Project. Well, the next day I got a phone call from that young Marine and to my surprise he said, my God, they're discharging me. So by Monday, he was on his way out of the Marine Corps. I never had to use the Bay Area Military Law Project card again. And that's my story from being not exactly in uniform, but with people who are in uniform. So um, thank you so much. Our next speaker tonight is Bev Levine. Bev grew up in Southern California wearing all sorts of uniforms, from her brown and green vests to an assortment of team jerseys. She then went to Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. After graduation, she went to work a summer at Katmai National Park in Alaska, wearing a brown volunteer uniform. After an amazing summer there, next stop was back to Southern California for two seasons working at an outdoor education camp in a green staff t-shirt. Then she got another opportunity to come back to Alaska. So the next summer, she was at the Mendenhall Glacier, where she gets to wear the green and khaki uniform. After one more final season in the green camp t-shirt, she came back to Juneau in January of 2015 to wear the green and khaki uniform some more. Please help me welcome Bev to the stage. So my first summer in Alaska was at Katmai National Park big brown bear country where we got experience, got a lot of close encounters with those bears. One of these days I was stationed at the corner. This is the area right across the river. There's a bridge in the river, someone on the far platform, a ranger over there, and I'm on the corner. And if any bears come near, I gotta move the group of visitors away from that bridge, making sure they stay that 50 yards away. So this day earlier on the radio, we'd been hearing about this big dominant male bear walking around through camp. They finally hazed him. He went up river, up past the cultural center up there. So it wasn't a big worry at this time. So I'm standing at the corner talking to one of my friends over there who was off duty at the time. And then all of a sudden, we hear this rustling in the bushes. Probably not very, just across the trail from us, not very far. And we look over there and it's this big bear. And so I radio across to the other, the woman on the other side of the bridge, the ranger over there, and ask, is my point clear? The point being that our only escape route at the time. And she's like, why? And I'm like, there's a bear in the marsh heading our direction. She's like, yeah, it's clear. The next thing I hear over the radio, though, is, which bear? I have no idea. It's big. So I reply with, big. And my friend and I, we start walking down the point. The bear comes out of that bush onto the trail that we had just been standing on and then also starts walking down towards the point. And at this point, I'm thinking, where are we going to go? But I was pretty lucky that bear was a lot more interested in the salmon that were in the river than in us humans. So, so he veered off the trail, ended up in the river, got a, caught himself a nice salmon. We got some pretty good views of this bear. 
And so in this situation was not the only time I've had those encounters with bears. Many of the visitors coming in there had these expectations of me standing in that uniform at the corner or on the platform, expecting me to keep them safe from the bears. We never told them we were keeping them safe. It's one word we never used. That was, they had to make some their own choices. But that was their expectation of me. When they left that park, they knew me as the ranger who helped kept keep them safe around the bears. I then had my summer up at camp wearing that green staff t-shirt that every Monday morning I'd put on, thinking about the expectations. The teachers coming up there with their students, those teachers expected us to be really good role models to their students and teach them something. The kids, on the other hand, expected us to be silly and fun and goof off all the time. And so we had to act a certain way to do that. So I would stand up on that stage in front of the students before meals, singing a silly song about moose. And I'd also be maybe wearing some cool knee-high socks, showing off a unique personality, and being confident in who I was, trying to be that good role model for them. And then I came down to the glacier and put on a, yet a different uniform of that khaki shirt and green pants. And I would interact with the visitors. They would come up to me in those, at the time and be, they'd ask a question. They would ask me how my day was, expecting me to be happy, loving, loving my area. Who wouldn't with such a great view out there every day? And they would expect with that question that I would, know, they, I would be passionate about whatever topic they had to be. If it was about glaciers or rocks or trees or whatever it happened to be that they have a question about that I would love to answer and I couldn't wait. And so that's what I did. I always was having a great day at the glacier. And yeah, that question that you'd ask, that's the first time I ever heard it. And I love it. I love talking about the glacier. The rocks are the coolest things in the whole entire world. And so it got to me thinking about all these times that the visitors and everyone I interacted with in uniform had of me. The expectation from the visitors at Katmai. When they walked away, they knew me as the, the ranger who kept them safe from the bears. The kids walking away from camp. They knew me as that really fun, confident human being that they want to be when they grow up. At least that was my goal. And then the visitors who come to the glacier, they know me as this happy, loving person who loves the glacier and, can't, and just can't stop talking about how great it is. And those were the expectations they had of me. And so they asked me though, who am I? Am I that person? When I, but when I go home on my weekends, I'm calm. I like doing things on my own. I sit and read a book, maybe go for a walk in the sun, something relaxing, not as high energy as I was at camp. But I do, I am a happy person. I love, with, when I meet new people, I'm a little bit more stand back, sit to the side, shy in those situations. But when I'm with my friends, I'm out there loud, having a whole bunch of fun. So who am I? These visions that these visitors have of me, is that who I am, the one that they have in their head? Or am I someone else? When I'm in my own head, am I, is that who I am? And that is something I've pondered with, and I think it's a collection of all these things. The, when I'm in uniform, it brings out certain parts of me, some really strong personality parts, but there are other parts of me also. And that's try, who I'm trying to figure out is who am I? Our next speaker tonight is Zane Jones. Zane came to Juno nearly five years ago and instantly fell in love with all the adventure, quirkiness, and goodness this place has to offer. Despite his English bulldog body type, <laughs> Juno has turned him into one of those soggy but happy Juno trail runners. He has advanced skills in shape and design working for MRV Architects and he still can't figure out how to fit Tupperware together. 
You will find Zane serving his community on multiple boards, including Jazz and Classics and CBJ's Historic Advisory Committee, or entertaining his friends through hosting Art Nights, Scotch Nights, Cupcake War Nights, Mobile Sauna Nights, or Wig and Spandex Nights. So, please welcome Zane. So I had someone help me write that and ad-lib a little bit, too. So my story starts in about 2002 in a little town in Norway called Boda, which is up north above the Arctic Circle. Quaint little place, not too unlike Juneau. Walking down the street, and I heard a sound that I still shudder at a little bit, which is sound of someone gathering spit, and then that spit landing in my face. So I know, surprise, surprise, an average white male was not accustomed to prejudice. I was quite shocked by this, and it took me back, and it really sank in, and if, if it's ever happened to you, I'm sure you felt the same. But the reason for that prejudice uh, was the uniform I was wearing, which was that of a Mormon missionary. I guess to back up from that, too, um, I introduce myself often as a fully recovered Mormon, but I come from a long pedigree of Utah Mormons and a strong lineage, and so it was a big part of my life, and you know, I have no animosity and that sort of thing, so that's not what this story is about. But I was very surprised at someone that, you know, here I was, minding my own business, thinking I was doing a great thing and being a great person, and someone had such prejudice towards me for a belief that I felt was, you know, a good thing at the time. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe it is a little crazy, who knows? Um, but I didn't want to continue that, and I had a, a lot of wonderful experiences uh, while there, and one of them, a guy named Roald, um, he's a, a guy that the, the missionaries before me had warned me about as being a, a, a crazy person. And he, he would fit the stereotype, the bill. He would, as we'd come walking down the street, he'd make a scene, hoop and holler and yell and try to embarrass us. And, you know, once you've put on that uniform and people stare at you, it's like you just kind of don't care. And so I just decided to listen to him a little bit and let him finish his rants. And, and it ended up he, well, he was pretty crazy when, when you think about it, but, but he ended up being a really great person and we had a strong connection. He gave me a book that um, is full of drawings of really scary people with machine guns and cigarettes. But it's one of the greatest books I own and it's still my favorite. <laughs> Uh, it's called The Art of Travel. It's um, just a beautiful book on appreciating the beauty in life. And, and so, you know, in, in hindsight, taking that book might have, might have been a cue that I was a little off, you know, my rocker. But who knows? Um, so, no, I, I really had so many wonderful experiences thinking about this story and formulating it with, with a few friends and what it, what it meant to uh, be there and and have that uniform, but also take it off later in life. So um, uh, one of the other important things or lessons that I learned, I guess, uh, along those same lines is, is uh, another lady that, that we helped out. Because uh, part of being a missionary is service. You know, you're not supposed to go out and force anything on anyone. You're just supposed to take some time and do service, which I thought was a great idea and, and a great opportunity. And we bought groceries for this lady that was, because of health issues, pretty much locked to her couch, and she was immobile, and, and uh, we bought groceries for her, took her, um, deposited her checks, and did some banking for her, and, 
and she just, you know, thought we were the nicest guys around, and we took her down one, she had a medical appointment, and we, I think she was a little embarrassed by having to have people carry her down the stairs and that sort of thing, and so she asked us, who, you know, we visited her once a week, and she asked us to do it, and we took her outside, and I remember her being just ecstatic at the sight of grass, and it was one of the most intimate moments of appreciation for just goodness that I'd ever had. So there's these amazing moments that I felt that I was doing something incredible, um, while there was so many others that were definitely opposed to what we were doing. Um, I guess to back up even one more step that I forgot to, to mention in the story is I was fortunate enough to have a dad that, that was one foot in, one foot out of, of the congregation, if you will, and he could, he could party with the best of them, but he also felt very comfortable on the pew. So. Uh, I think I had a, a, a real leg up having that um, <laughs> perspective. So, so I think that's maybe why I connected with the crazy guy, who knows. But I also had a, a great experience of an alcoholic that we visited every week that, that um, baked bread. And, and, you know, just like Juno, the dark months get a little tough, and so the bread got really terrible in the dark months. But, <laughs> but he uh, ended up one time walking down the street with him. He ended up at somebody that was, you know, yelling some, some off-colored things at us. He ended up being that mad alcoholic at those people and defending us, so I really appreciated it. Um, but formulating the story with a friend, um, she mentioned that, that that uniform is part of me and it hasn't been taken off, and that really took me back. Uh, and so I, because in my mind, I've definitely taken it off, and, and so I wondered that's... That just didn't make a lot of sense to me, and I had to think about that for a little bit. And I think it was these ideas that, that the experiences that I had, which were basically that, that uh, spit in the face, if you will, that prejudice. And um, later on, after coming home and, and uh, going to school and, and having a few experiences, there was uh, a point that, for me anyway, that the church itself, and I don't want to speak too ill of it, but there was, they were showing some prejudice towards the group and influencing others to be prejudiced, and I think the irony of it is the lesson I learned while wearing that uniform was the very lesson that made me take it off, um, that you can't judge someone based on their uniform. So, thanks. Our next speaker is Tom Chard. Tom Chard first moved to Juneau in 2003. He's from New York. Although he's from upstate New York, he understands that being from the Empire State comes with certain preconceptions and responsibilities. So tonight he's here to make storytelling great again. I mean, so great that we're all going to be winning here. <laughs> we're going to be winning so much that we're going to be sick and tired of winning. We're going to get bored with winning <laughs> and of being great. His story is going to be huge. <laughs> Please help me welcome Tom. I, I was trying to coach on how to, how to say huge <laughs> like they do back in New York. Uh, well, some of you might know uh, where that was coming from. Huge. Yeah. I think there's an E in it somehow at the front. So when I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, 
I thought the theme is in uniform. I should probably talk about the military. I was in the Air Force. My brother is currently in the Army. My dad was in the Navy, and his dad was in the Army Air Corps, actually stationed up here in Alaska. I've got a lot of military stories, but I wanted to talk about a different kind of uniform today. My other grandfather never served in the military. Grandpa Tony Trello, he enjoyed sports in school, married his high school sweetheart, and eventually took over the family grocery store that his grandfather started when he came to America from Italy. He grew up as an only child, so he'd bike down to his cousin's house and play football with the other kids in the neighborhood. They played ball in school and became lifelong friends. You know these guys. The guys that, for the rest of their lives, light up retelling the same stories of a particular tackle or a close-scoring game as if they had just played it. A lot of these guys don't end up playing football after high school, but it's definitely not because they didn't want to. Grandpa Trello loved football, but he loved his family more. And so when my mom was born, he hung up the jersey and put on an apron. And I can still picture him to this day in the store wearing that apron. He'd wear it for the next 50 years, and we all grew up in the store. There was something very reassuring about the store and about my grandfather always being there. But he did love football, and in the 60s, him and his buddy Mike decided to restart a community football league. If you listen to my grandma tell this story, my grandfather and Mike talked about restarting the league so much that it drove everyone crazy. Eventually, they just told him, just start it already. So the guys self-financed the uniforms and asked their friends to help out in one way or another, and they started the Hudson Falls Green Jackets. Mike and my grandfather would coach these guys who would work all day and then put on a uniform to go play football with teams from all over the state. He loved playing football in school and he loved coaching the Green Jackets, but eventually coaching and managing the team became a little too difficult. The team still continues to this day, except now it's the Glens Falls Green Jackets. Guys from the Green Jackets would come into the store and relive their glory days with my grandfather for the rest of his life. And these guys always had these colorful nicknames, Stinky and Lefty and Brownie. To this day, I have no idea what these guys' real names are. Years later, my cousin pretended that he had some kind of high school project and interviewed my grandfather. He gave the information from the interview over to a local sports reporter, and that reporter submitted a nomination. My grandfather was inducted into the National Minor League Football Hall of Fame. I went to the induction ceremony. It was in Las Vegas. I was sitting with my grandpa, and he lit up the room. He stood for his acceptance speech, talked about the guys along the way, and thanked everybody in the crowd. They gave him a ring with his induction year and his football number, number 64. And he loved this ring. He wore it all the time. When he first got it, my email inbox was flooded with these pictures of him posing like he was knocking somebody out, <laughs> featuring the ring, of course. He wore it everywhere. He would show it to anyone and everyone and would tell the story, except he wasn't really focused too much on himself. And eventually, despite how much he loved this ring, he only got to wearing it for special occasions. I think it just maybe drew too much attention to him, or, and he was uncomfortable with that. A few years ago, 
I went home for a visit. My brother had arranged to meet me in Albany, and the two of us were going to drive up to a camp my grandparents have up in Lake George. We told him we probably wouldn't get in until about midnight, but in typical fashion, my grandparents went to the camp to wait for us to get there. We didn't end up getting in until like two in the morning, and when I got there, my sister met me at the door. She told me that my grandparents were there and they had already left to go home. When they got home, they had discovered that their house had been broken into and they had been robbed. My grandparents were in their 70s. They had accumulated a lifetime of special mementos and reminders of their special occasions in life. On top of that, they had some heirloom jewelry that their grandparents had given to them. My grandmother lost quite a bit. My grandfather just lost one thing, the ring. You see, uniforms mean something. They're more than just a jersey, a patch, or a badge. My grandfather's ring had come to represent his youth and some of the best times of his life. He was turning 80, and you could tell that losing the ring that reminded him of all that really bothered him. It somehow meant that he was losing that part of him all over again. For his 80th birthday, my brother got this great idea. He asked everyone to contribute a little bit of money, and we'd order a replacement ring. We collected the money, searched through every photo to match every detail of this ring, and ordered the duplicate. I wasn't sure how my grandfather would feel about the replacement, but on his 80th birthday, my mom, my aunt, and my uncle got together to give him the gift. They explained that all of us had pitched in together and that we were very proud of him and all that he had accomplished. He teared up at the gesture and slid his uniform back onto his finger. They caught the guys that broke into my grandparents' house. It was all over the news, hundreds of homes, over 30,000 items stolen. The Hudson Falls Police Department tagged and labeled each stolen item. They laid them out on these tables in the gym at my old high school and walked people through a maze of stolen goods. My grandparents got most of what was stolen back, and Grandpa found the ring. So now, after all this, he has two nearly identical rings. <laughs> One he got from all the successes he had on the field, and the other he got from all the successes he had off the field. But from that point forward, he only ever wore one of those rings. Thank you. Well, he's drinking whiskey and he's playing with a gun and it wasn't his intent to cause contempt. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on March 9, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was In Uniform. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. And he reaches in his pocket and he counts his shells. He's not a danger to others. He's a danger to himself. Our next speaker tonight is John King. 
John was born in L.A. but was raised in western Washington. When presented with an opportunity to move north once again, he took the plunge to coexist in Juneau with even more rain, evergreen trees, green moss, and slugs than his hometown offered. His hobbies include hiking, running, cooking, discount, searching, house projects, working on cars, and exploring the Tongass with his eight-and-a-half-pound dog. Over the years, John has worn many different uniforms, from grocery store clerk to gardener, chauffeur, environmental outreach intern, bus driver, dispatcher, manager, Costco sample provider, and most recently, State of Alaska employee. Please welcome John. All right, so this story starts in the fall of 2009 during my last year of college at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Um, I was uh, in my last year and started thinking about what I wanted to do after graduating because I did not want to be one of those people that ends up moving back in at their parents' house after college graduation. So around that time, a company came to our campus to recruit for uh, people to drive buses and give tours in Alaska. And I figured, well, I have known some people that have done that. Sounds kind of fun. And I have a degree in environmental studies, so I might as well drive buses. <laughs> so I applied and uh, had an interview with the representative that had come down from Juneau. And um, we're sitting there in the interview, and she is going over the uniform, and very in-depth, the uniform requirements. She uh, goes through what the company provides and what the driver provides. And she tells me the company provides two blue shirts, a tie, black raincoat, a blue fleece, and a gray fleece vest. And the driver provides black slacks, black closed-toed shoes, black socks, and a black belt. So I'm actually wearing the uniform uh, tonight for you. <laughs> Otherwise, I would, not, I would not be wearing these uh, things. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I get hired for the job, and the training starts in February of 2010. Um, they had a training program in Washington for people to get their commercial driver's licenses so that once the season starts, they could come up to Juneau and be ready to drive buses. So I uh, start the training and learn that the training is business casual. And being a very uh, casual person and a poor college student, I didn't have any nice clothes. <laughs> Really, so I went to the Valley Village thrift store and picked up some uh, used slacks, used collared shirts, and uh, tie. We start training, and uh, it, there's both classroom sessions and behind the wheel, and we learn one of the first rules about the uniform is that you have to tie back your tie when you're doing your engine inspection so that you don't get sucked into the moving parts of the engine, <laughs> which I thought was kind of strange because, you know, it, the tie is here, but, you know, it could hurt you. <laughs> so uh, I go through the training and uh, ended up liking the training a lot more than my college work, so I skipped class to go learn how to drive a bus. I thought it was a lot more fun. And uh, passed my training after uh, soiling and ruining a lot of my shirts with grease stains. I got my commercial driver's license. Two months later and two days after my college graduation, I arrive here in Juneau and uh, rent a room in a house by the Twin Lakes. I borrowed a bike from someone I kind of had a connection with here in town and would bike 12 miles round trip uh, to and from work each day, uh, often in the rain. 
On my first day of work, I go in and they give me my uniform pieces. They give me my two shirts, my uh, black raincoat, fleece vest, and uh, long sleeve fleece. But they were out of ties. So I figured I'd uh, comply with the rules and wear my own tie, which I later got audited two weeks after my first day and got written up for not wearing the company supplied tie. So I went back in, they gave me one, and I started to wonder if this tie had been turned in by someone who quit or maybe the person had gotten sucked into the engine and they no longer existed to, to drive a bus. But uh, by far the, the job was the most fun job I've ever had, it was, it was a blast. Uh, imagine a bunch of 21-year-olds driving people around all day, adding themselves to people's vacation and standing up and giving tours, although they were actually behind me normally, so I'm used to talking to people, but normally they're behind me, and I'm, I can look at them in a mirror. <laughs> uh, but the job was nuts. It was a lot of fun, but it was crazy. Uh, the craziest thing, I think, is um, every day we'd show up in our uniforms and the company had buses from 1970, and we'd roll up in the dock in this old bus, and it's the same model bus that they drove in the movie Speed. If you've seen that with Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves, and they can't go slow, and otherwise the bus will blow up. So we'd pull up in these buses, and they had no power steering. So if you've driven a car with no power steering, you know that when it's stopped, you can't really turn. In a bus with no power steering, if you're stopped, you can't turn at all. So you have to plan your moves really carefully. Uh, I learned uh, a good trick to be able to get around the corners was to keep the seatbelt loose a little bit, and you could almost stand up while turning <laughs> on the difficult turns and get some more leverage, and that helped a lot. <laughs> uh, another funny thing about these buses was they had no air conditioning, and so when uh, it was a, a wet day, all the moisture would fog up the windows. And a driver trick is you rub dish soap on the inside of the windows, and somehow it keeps the fog from sticking. But if you use too much dish soap, it would drip down into the heater vents, and it would start to blow bubbles. <laughs> and the bubbles would drift down the, the aisle of the bus. <laughs> so that was good for tips, I guess. But they also didn't have any storage on the bottom for like when people would bring folding walkers or wheelchairs or strollers. And to mitigate that, they each came with one bungee cord. And you would bungee cord all of the strollers and the walkers to the front bar and the inside of the bus. But if there were a lot of them, sometimes it was really difficult to get to the driver's seat because you were having to crawl over all these mobility devices to get there. But back to the uniform, uh, we worked really long days and we worked you know, a lot of them. And so there wasn't a lot of time to do laundry. So over time, I found myself with dirty shirts, only having two. So I started to change my uniform a little bit, and over time, I would just wear a dirty shirt and wear the fleece vest, so you, know, you couldn't see the oil and the dirt on the front. Uh, then I stopped wearing the tie. Then I realized that if I just zipped up my rain jacket all the way, no one would know what I had on underneath. So I would just wear a t-shirt and zip up my raincoat. And then with the pants, I would just wear like jeans and put on my black rain pants, which worked out great unless it was a day that was rainy in the morning and got nice in the afternoon, and you couldn't take off your outer layers because you were dressed like a tourist. <laughs> so uh, in the end, I didn't have any problems with my uniform. Uh, no bosses ever asked me what was going on, and uh, no one ever got me in trouble. It only became an issue later on, a couple years later, and became a manager for the company, and one of my jobs was to enforce making sure people were in uniform. 
which I felt like an imposter because I hadn't done it very well myself. But uh, I am proud to say that the company now got rid of the ties. They now give drivers more than two uniform shirts, and all of the buses now have power steering. Thanks for listening to my story about my summer out of uniform. Our next speaker is Tanya Peszkowski. Tanya is 70 years old. She went to college in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1964, worked on a master's degree in philosophy, and graduated from the University of California Hastings College of the Law with a Juris Doctor in 1972, one of three women in her class. Tanya practiced as a trial lawyer for 25 years in San Francisco. When she retired, her partner returned to university and began his work life. For about the last 20 years, they've lived in Skagway, Antioch, Unalakleet, and for the last two years in Juneau. During this time, Tanya has worked as a baker, a barista, a cargo loader, an aviation dispatcher, a childcare worker, and a cross-country biathlon coach. She and her partner have kayaked and hiked all over Alaska and North America for months every summer and are f fortunate to be able to answer the question, what do you do with whatever I want? I came of age in the Bay Area in the 60s, graduated from college and law school, and started practicing law at, as a trial lawyer for two very talented trial lawyers in San Francisco who had a theory that they could train someone to do complex litigation without trying 55 rear-end accidents back to back. So that was what we were about trying to do. I had had many experiences while I was in law school, but I decided that being a trial lawyer, that was going to be it. When I got to the point where I could go to court, my boss came to me and said, well, Tanya, these are the local rules of court for the Northern District of California in the U.S. Ninth Circuit. Read them. We don't know how to mentor you about your dress, but we're pretty sure you need help. <laughs> so he said, what I can tell you is this. The opposing parties the judges, the press, they will judge you. What you want them to do is judge your issue. What you want to do is represent your client and win. Anything that gets in the way of those things is what you don't want to do. So, take these rules, read them. This is your motion. You write it, you make it, you argue it. So I got ready and I did that. It seemed simple enough to me. At the time, I was neither old enough or mature enough to realize that no one really knew where women fit in the trial law practice. People could not get jobs as a trial lawyer. Women could not be hired. Nobody would hire them. So I had this really wonderful, unique opportunity. But I don't think either the men I worked for 
or myself really understood. We, I knew they weren't sexist. They knew they weren't sexist. We all thought we were going to be practicing equality at the time. And uh, whatever that meant, that's what we were going to do. So I had a baby. And three days later, my motion was on the docket to be argued by myself. And I remember thinking, hmm, well, I guess my, my boss had a baby. He argued his own motion. <laughs> so that, 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 this is what's going to happen. I get up in the morning. I've, I've read the rules. The rules are very clear. The local rules cover everything. What has to be capitalized, what pound paper you have to use to write it on, uh, what gets in italics, and exactly what you have to wear. So you have to wear a suit that is gray, black, or dark blue. And you have to wear a white shirt, and you have to wear a tie. Nothing to said about pants, because, of course, there are no women lawyers. So pants are not discussed. It's assumed that a man will wear pants. <laughs> I read them very carefully. The local rules in San Francisco get right to the heart of the matter. No t-shirts, no shorts, no flip-flops, no narrow jackets. Um, I can't remember. Oh, no sandals. So I have the baby. I tell my mother that I have to argue this motion. She goes out. She buys me a gray suit. She comes back. It's the day of the motion. I'm thrilled. I can, I can get in the suit. It's gray. It's a gray pantsuit. I've got on a white blouse and a thin red tie. And I'm feeling pretty snazzy, I guess is the word. I was, I was feeling pretty good about it. I get on the Muni, I go to the courthouse, I go through the, there, there happens to be a marshal there checking people because they're trying a hell's angel in a murder case in the courtroom next door. So you have to get patted down, you have to show them your briefcase. I do all this. Behind me in line is one of the defense lawyers and he says, don't, don't pat her down. And the marshal goes, Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you look great. And he gives me the big smile. I go up to the courthouse. I go up to the courtroom. Bailiff says, you got to stay standing until the judge dismisses you. We get in there. He calls our names. He calls all the defense attorneys. He calls my name. He says, how do you wish to be addressed? And I think, uh, Counselor Pashkowski. I'm thinking to myself, like all the other people I wish to be addressed. And he says, okay, Counselor Peshkowski, have you read the local rules? I say, yes, I have, Your Honor. Hmm. And he kind of mumbles and shuffles his papers around for a little bit. And he says, Madam, are you licensed? And I said, uh, yes, yes, I am. And uh, in those days, no, you didn't have to put your license number on any of the motions, so I had no idea what it was, but he, he seemed fine with that. And so we, then we broke off into the motion, and I argued, and they argued, and he made his decision, and I won, and we're all picking up our papers, and I'm feeling pretty good about it. The defense attorneys are mumbling that they never got to sit down the whole time they were there, and I didn't really think about that. I get back on the Muni, and I go to my office. 
I walk in my office and my secretary says, oh my God, did you go to court this morning? And I said, yes, yes I did. And she says, dressed like that? And I said, hey, relax, we won. It's a gray suit, it's a white blouse, it's a little skinny red tie. It was perfect, he smiled. And she said, no, my God, no. With those fleshy blue slippers on? <laughs> I looked down and thought, oh. She says, oh, Tanya, you're going to need a wife. You really are. <laughs> Our last speaker tonight is Douglas Mertz. Douglas Mertz got a law degree in 1974 and had to decide whether to move to a big eastern city or light out for the territories. He lit out for Alaska and never looked back. He worked as an assistant attorney general on environmental cases and then was in private practice, mostly defending employees' rights. He was given the Alaska Civil Libertarian of the Year Award by the American Civil Liber Liberties Union in 2007 and was named one of the 40 heroes of constitutional rights in Alaska in 2011. Please welcome Doug. Good evening. Tonight, I'd like to tell you about my career in a military high school. I went to a military academy from the sixth grade through 12th grade. We all had ranks. We had to wear uniforms, wool slacks with uh, black stripes down the side, a gray uh, shirt with a black tie, brass insignia on our collars, black shoes with spit shines, of course, and with the rubber sole, the rubber heel removed and replaced with a leather heel because it sounded better while you were marching. We also had a professor of military science, or PMS. It was the colonel. The colonel was an, a West Pointer, ramrod stiff backbone, former artillery officer in the army who fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was also our math teacher, and he used to teach us geometry by calculating angles of fire to send shells into the German lines. <laughs> At that time, I was also taking German from a, another former artillery officer in the German army who told us what it was like to lob shells back at the colonel. <laughs> well, the colonel's math class became a combat zone, and our weapons were spitballs and paper airplanes. The colonel didn't know what to do with us. The more advanced combatants among the students figured out that if the colonel's back was turned to you while he was writing on the blackboard, you could lob spitballs at the blackboard and they'd hit, and the really advanced students figured out how to come as close as they could to the colonel's ears. It reached its low point when one of the paper plane combatants managed to throw one that lodged right under the colonel's uniform shoulder <laughs> epaulets, and that was it. He just tore it out, turned to us, turned beet red and said, Men have been obeying me for 30 years, and now you people come along. <laughs> A week later, he decided to retire. <laughs> the colonel was replaced as PMS by the general. 
also ex-army. We liked the general, he was a good guy, and he taught us many useful things. He taught us how to calculate the maximum length of sideburns, how to trim our fingernails in the manner in which Caesar prescribed for his legionnaires, and most useful of all, in a class on leadership skills, he taught us the command voice. The command voice is a combination of timbre and cadence that implies, I am in command, you are here to obey, now. It's very useful. <laughs> in my later career as a lawyer, I've used it a number of times when cross-examining adverse witnesses. It always works. Well, in my junior year, I was a corporal, which meant I had command of a squad, seven or eight cadets. And I was given the misfit squad. Those cadets who had no chance of being taught military virtues. And my job was basically keep them out of trouble, keep them out of sight for the year. And we did all right, we enjoyed ourselves. But at the end of the school year was the annual competitive drill, where everybody in the entire battalion dressed up in full dress uniforms, marched around and showed off their marching skills and manual of arms skills with their rifles in front of a panel of judges in exchange for medals if you want. My guys by that time had had enough of being treated as second-class citizens. So they decided, look, we're going to be contenders. For weeks beforehand, they drilled their butts off, and they got good, as good as anybody in the entire battalion. They were ready, and on competitive day, we were all there in our full-dress uniforms, ready to show our stuff to the judges. Well, unit after unit went in front of the judges, and the afternoon went on and on, and then finally I went to the general and said, General, when are we going to be judged? And he said, the competition's over. The judging is done. We didn't think you wanted to compete. My guys were so livid. They had been out there, had done their best, and this is the treatment they got, and it just confirmed everything they had thought about the military. Well, that was the end of junior year. Senior year, at the beginning of the year, promotions are announced for officer positions. Those are lieutenants and captains and, and one major. And we all looked at the list, and I looked at it, and my name wasn't even on it. I didn't get it. No promotion at all. I had done well with the Misfit Squad. Why didn't I get at least some kind of promotion? I was really bummed. But my mother was outraged. <laughs> she immediately called the real power in the school, the head football coach. <laughs> and by the next morning, I was the senior color sergeant, the person in charge of all the flags who got to carry the US flag in the parades, uh, raise and lower the flag in front of the school. It was a pretty responsible position, and I learned all about flag protocol, which is an interesting subject. And I really enjoyed shouting out, hand salute, when I started to raise the flag in the morning and all these doofus officers had to stand there and maintain a hand salute as we very slowly <laughs> raised the flag all the way up. <laughs> that was fun. But the whole business about this promotion list kept bugging me. And I thought, somebody ought to do something about this. It ought to, the secret ought to get out. 
and I was in a position to do something. I was the news editor of the school paper. I thought to myself, responsible journalism, investigative stories, this is perfect, speaking truth to power. So I did what a good journalist would do. I, I double-checked all my facts. I write a, a good, tight, objective story, and I found a good place for it in the next issue, right on page two next to the editorial. And the, the, the mock-up got sent off to the printers. Two days later, it came back for distribution, and I grabbed the top copy off the pile, turned to page two. The story wasn't there. Well, maybe you got moved to page one. Nope, not on page one. Three, four, it wasn't there. Nobody knew or would say what had happened. And I knew better than to ask the headmaster, much less the football coach. So I learned some lessons. I learned it's hard to speak truth to power when the power owns the paper. <laughs> and I also learned either to get ahead, you keep your head down, or you always keep your head up. And I've never been sure which is the right one. <laughs> well, we managed to graduate. Out of my class, only one person joined the military. <laughs> a few later got drafted and were sent to Vietnam. Most came back, a few did not. A few years after that, the school abolished the military program. There was no great outcry from the alums. Nobody really seemed to care. And as for me, I still fly the flag on the 4th and on Memorial Day with proper protocol right next to my war is not the answer sign. <laughs> and if you ever want to know anything about proper flag protocol, just ask. And if you want, I'll give you the answer in the command voice. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on March 9, 2016. The theme for the evening was In Uniform. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, and Kristen Stouter. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. I'm thinking that I'm falling all the time. As a child, I walked alone and talked to myself, and I dreamed that I.